Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, May 8th, 2020. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This evening, we are going to present the very last installment in our commentary on the Gospel of John. This is part 51, and it's subtitled, Feed My Sheep. The resurrection of Yahshua Christ is an assurance for those men who can accept it that God is true, that he does indeed transcend his creation, and that he had also determined from the beginning to take a part in his own creation in the person of Yahshua Christ, the Son. This was spoken before time in the words of the prophets. And it was the inevitable conclusion that had been made by the apostles themselves once they realized the fact of his resurrection. Therefore, once Thomas had seen him, he immediately responded by acknowledging him to be both my Lord and my God. Realizing that Yahweh God, incarnate as a man, can transcend or overcome the physical limitations of his creation. It must be realized that his promises of eternal life for the Adamic man of his creation must also be true. And therefore, the resurrection of Christ is an Adamic dawn, as we have described it. The sun rising as a manifestation of the true light which is an assurance of life to men, to the entire Adamic race, which had previously sat in darkness. But even this is only the beginning of a Christian understanding, which leads to many other inevitable conclusions, too numerable to explain here. In his first epistle, which was evidently written not long after John had written this gospel, his own conclusions made with this understanding, led him to explain that we must keep the commandments of God and love our brethren. If we love our brethren and keep the commandments, then by that we have confidence that we are of God, and our keeping of the commandments is how we also manifest our love for our brethren. Paul of Tarsus had essentially taught that same thing but with a very different approach and much more elaboration. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he had warned that sinners, such as those who commit fornication, which among other things includes race mixing, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Jude 7, flesh that out, or sodomy, which today is called homosexuality, a euphemism for sodomy. Or those who are adulterers or thieves or even the covetous or effeminate will not enter the kingdom of God. So he urged men to depart from those sins immediately. But warning against fornication above all other sins, he continued and said, flee fornication. Every sin that a man does is without or outside of the body. But he that commits fornication sins against his own body. And then he asks a rhetorical question. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit which is in you, 
which you have of God, and you are not your own? For you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Committing fornication is a direct sin against the entire body of Christ. Against our entire race. Man did not create himself, and therefore he is not an entity unto himself, and shall ultimately answer to his creator. The ancient children of Israel answered to Yahweh their God, and were sent off into punishment for their sin. They were depicted as having sold themselves into sin. So we read in a messianic prophecy, in Isaiah chapter 52, where Israel would be redeemed from sin and called to obedience in their Messiah. Awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion, put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. And Zion and Jerusalem are allegories for the people and their leaders wherever they are in their captivity. For henceforth there shall no more come into thee the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake thyself from the dust, arise and sit down, O Jerusalem, loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus saith Yahweh, you have sold yourselves for naught, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus saith Yahweh God, my people went down aforetime into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them without cause, an allusion to the two captivities of Israel. Now therefore, what have I here, saith Yahweh, that my people is taken away for naught, they that rule over them, make them to howl, saith Yahweh. And my name continually every day is blasphemed. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore they shall know that in that day I am he that does speak. Behold, it is I. So the apostles had realized that Yahshua Christ was indeed that very same God of the Scriptures, which is revealed in the fact of his resurrection. While in the Bible, the history and fate of the wider Adamic race is told through the, per through the perspective of the history and experience of the ancient Israelites, the children of God have no choice in the matter of their own fate. They were bought back from sin. They are the property of their Redeemer. And they could not die even if they wanted to, as we read in another Messianic prophecy in Isaiah chapter 28. Because you have said we have made a covenant with death, and with hell are we at agreement. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, it shall not come unto us, for we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood we have hid ourselves. And in reality, you cannot hide yourself from the wrath of God. You might think that you have some alternate belief system 
that, oh, that Bible's not my religion. It can't harm me. But you're only kidding yourself, having made lies for your refuge. Therefore, thus saith Yahweh God, behold, Christ had quoted this in reference to himself. I lay in Zion for a foundation stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believes shall not make haste. Judgment also will I lay to the line and righteousness to the plummet. And the hail shall sweep away the refuge of lies. And we wait for that day. And the water shall overflow the hiding place. And your covenant with death shall be disannulled. And your agreement with hell shall not stand when the overflowing scourge shall pass through. Then ye shall be trodden down by it if you remain in your lies. God is true and will, will not be mocked. Ultimately, his creation will function in a manner which fulfills the purpose for which it was designed and will suffer the consequences of disobedience until it agrees to function accordingly. This is also what it truly means to be of Christ, that you are one of those people whom he had purchased with his blood. The very meaning of redemption in the first place being to buy something back that one had formerly possessed but lost for some reason. Since the stated purpose of Yahweh for his Messiah was to buy the children of Israel back from sin and death, only the children of Israel can be of Christ. Any attempt to replace them with some other people, contrary to God's stated purpose, is an attempt to commit fraud against God. He came only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and it is they whom he intended to describe where he tells Peter here to feed my sheep, the sheep he already possessed in accordance with his own law of redemption. The fall of ancient Babylon is a shadow and a type for the coming fall of mystery Babylon. And as Yahweh had said in Isaiah chapter 48, Yahweh has redeemed his servant Jacob. So we read in Revelation chapter 18, Come out of her, my people, and the identity of the people of God has not changed. Now we shall commence with our commentary on the final chapter of John. Christ had already appeared to his disciples twice while they were still in Jerusalem. And now this is some days or perhaps even weeks later after they had returned to Galilee as he had told them that he would see them there. After these things, Yahshua showed himself again to the students by the sea at Tiberias. Now, Tiberias was a city on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. If the Sea of Galilee were perfectly round and a clock, Tiberias would be at about half past eight o'clock. The sea was also called Lake Gennesaret, a term which we see in the New Testament only in Luke chapter five. 
In the Old Testament, it was called the Sea of Kinneroth. As this city existed in the time of Christ, it was apparently built up from an older fishing village by Herod the Tetrarch, Herod Antipas, and named after the Emperor Tiberius once it was completed, sometime around 20 AD. Herod then made it the capital city of his tetrarchy. So we read in Antiquities, book 18, And now Herod the Tetrarch, who was in great favor with Tiberius, built a city of the same name with him and called it Tiberius. He built it in the best part of Galilee, at the lake of Gennesaret. There are warm baths at a little distance from it in a village named Emmaus. Now, this is not the, it's spelled the same in English, but this is not the same Emmaus as the one mentioned in Luke chapter 24. In his Wars of the Judeans, Wars of the Judeans, in book 7, Josephus mentioned that other Emmaus, which was only, as he said, which was only eight miles from Jerusalem. And that is the Emmaus mentioned in Luke. This village called Emmaus, which was near to Tiberias in Galilee, is nearly 75 miles north of Jerusalem. Continuing with the opening verse of John chapter 21, before we hit verse 2 after a few words. Now he showed himself thusly. They were together, Simon Petrus and Thomas, who was called Twin, or Didymus in the King James, and Nathanael, who is from Cana of Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, or Zebedahius in Greek, and two others of his students. We were never told how Thomas became an apostle in the first place, but he was certainly one of the original twelve. Once again, we chose to translate that word Didymus as twin, which is what it means. Perhaps Thomas was also of Galilee, as he is here with the others at this time. The sons of Zebedee were the younger James and the Apostle John, who is the author of this gospel. John certainly seems to have used this convention in order to once again avoid naming himself as he has throughout his account, and as he does again in a different way later on in this chapter, while he nevertheless tells us that it was him that he meant all along, that he referred to all along. The two other unnamed students may certainly have been two of the remaining apostles, but we will never know why John did not name them if we had to conjecture their identities. Since Andrew was an apostle and the brother of Simon Peter, and since Philip, also an apostle, was from Bethsaida, which was the same town where Andrew and Peter had lived, and since these men had apparently gathered here to fish, which was their original vocation, they are the most likely candidates, but to identify them would only be conjecture. As a digression, Bethsaida, which actually means 
house of fish in Hebrew, the home of Philip, Andrew, and Peter, as John had attested in chapter 1 of his gospel, is believed to have been on the upper northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee, about 1 o'clock, far opposite Tiberias. But while the apostles continued to call it by its original name, we read in Josephus's Antiquities, Book 18, speaking of Philip the Tetrarch, the brother of Herod Antipas, who was set as ruler of a different part of, of, his, father, of his father's old kingdom, of part of Judea. When Philip also had built Panias, a city at the fountains of Jordan, he named it Caesarea. He also advanced the village of Bethsaida, located at the lake of Gennesaret, to the dignity of a city, both by the number of inhabitants it contained and its other grandeur, and called it by the name of Julius, the same name with Caesar, Caesar, Tiberius Caesar's daughter. So the Herods had quite regularly spent tax money on public works and used them to flatter Caesar by naming them after him or members of his family. Simon Petrus, verse 3, Simon Peter says to them, I go to fish. Now there are seven men here together. They said to him, we also will come with you. They went out and boarded into the vessel, that's the word ployon, which the King James translates ship here. And on that night, they caught nothing. Perhaps it is inevitable that even experienced fishermen have nights where they do not catch any fish. At an earlier point in the ministry of Christ, as it is recorded in Luke chapter 5, we gain some insight into the vocation of these apostles, being fishermen and even having their own boats. There we read that after his temptation in the wilderness, Christ had come back to the Sea of Galilee, perhaps to this very same place. So upon seeing two idle vessels, and the, as the fishermen were washing their nets, Luke wrote, and he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, and prayed him, or requested of him, that he would thrust out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. Evidently, he was followed by a considerable crowd. Now, when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draught. And Simon answering said unto him, Master, we have toiled all the night and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes and their net broke or break in the archaic King James English. To move on to verse four. Then morning already having come, Yahshua stood on the shore. However, the students did not know that it is Yahshua. So Yahshua says to them, children, have you not anything to eat? They replied to him, no. And first we see that the Peter and his accomplices had 
Peter and his Peter and his companions had fished all night. Being near to Tiberias, a large city, the sight of a man standing on a shore in the morning was probably not unusual. The word pahidion here, Christ said to them, children, have you not anything to eat? The word pahidion was generally used to refer to small children. It's actually the diminutive form of pahis. And according to at least one Greek, one Greek writer cited by Liddell and Scott, it was used of children up to age seven, but it was also used to address young slaves. Perhaps in this context, boys would have been better, but the form of the word is neuter and by itself does not imply gender, for which reason I didn't translate it as boys. Since the men did not realize that it was Yahshua, while the term was also used by John in this manner in his first epistle, where he was referring to his readers, perhaps the word was also used colloquially as a term of endearment by older men addressing younger people. John also used the synonym technon and its diminutive form technion, which is a little child. In that same manner, in his epistles, and so did Paul of Tarsus on occasion. For example, in Galatians chapter 4, so it may have been a figure of speech for an older man to call a younger man child, or, or this group of younger men children, perhaps it was an affectionate, a figure of speech that was affectionate. I'm only guessing that too is conjectured. There's not enough information to determine that. But the apostles didn't see any problem with a stranger calling them children. Verse 6. Then he said to them, cast the net to the right side of the vessel and you shall find. And that's a word for word literal translation. And I, I really avoided adding words that weren't in the original Greek text, even if they could make the sentence have more sense or, or be more complete in English, right? Here, at this point, <clears throat> at this point, right in the middle of verse 6, the 3rd century papyrus P66 has a lengthy interpolation, and it says, But they said, Throughout the whole night we have labored and have taken nothing, yet upon your words we will cast. The interpolation is very similar to the text of Luke chapter 5, verse 5. So evidently, even the oldest known manuscripts may contain some embellishments, because I'm sure that's an embellishment borrowed from Luke chapter 5. Some Latin, Syriac, and even later Greek manuscripts also contain the interpolation. But all of the, um, all of the better and more complete 4th and 5th century manuscripts, 6th century manuscripts, do not have it. 
the manuscripts which I typically cite from my notes here. Finishing verse 6, therefore they cast, and no longer were they able to draw it, meaning the net, because of the multitude of fish. And here we have the second miraculous catch of fish recorded in Scripture, the first one being recorded in Luke chapter 5. Then that student whom Yahshua loved says to Petrus, or to Peter, it is the prince, or the Lord, if you will. So Simon Peter, hearing that it is the prince, girt himself with the frock, for he was naked and cast himself into the sea. And that's the exact opposite that we would expect somebody to do today. If you were fishing on a boat and wanted to jump into the sea to go meet somebody on the shore, you might take some of your clothing off and not put more on. <clears throat> the word for frock here, it's a little clumsy in the translation, but it was the most accurate word I could imagine. The word for frock is epindutes, and it appears only here in the New Testament. And in the Septuagint, in 2 Samuel chapter 13, and in some manuscripts of the Septuagint, also in chapter 18 of 1 Samuel, it describes an outer garment, but not necessarily a tunic. The tunic was typically the garment worn next to the skin, which was sort of a long shirt, and, and you would wear a, a toga or some other article of clothing over your tunic. Here this garment had apparently covered at least most of Peter's body, at least enough to satisfy his modesty. The verb John uses here, diazonumi, means to gird around or bind around or to tie around, and seems to indicate that the garment was an outer robe which tied at the front. So the ninth edition of the Liddell and Scott Greek English Lexicon properly defines it as a robe or garment worn over another. This would be a robe worn over your tunic. Peter didn't bother to put his tunic on. He just grabbed his robe and put it on and jumped in the water. Such a robe is typical of the frock worn by men throughout medieval times. The King James Version calls it a fisher's coat. Here. But the garment certainly is not a fisher's coat since Peter was not wearing it in order to fish. He took it off to fish. It's not a fishing coat. Notice that today men would typically wear at least some basic clothing while they worked. And Peter fishing is considered work. He's not fishing for leisure. And perhaps they would remove at least some of it before jumping into the water. But in ancient times, men customarily worked naked or with very little clothing because clothing was expensive and it was also much more difficult to launder when it became soiled. In John chapter 13, Christ removed his clothing and girt himself only with a towel before washing the feet of the apostles. In Acts chapter 7, even the men who had engaged in the stoning of the martyr Stephen had first laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name 
was Saul, Paul of Tarsus. But Peter, because he was naked while working, when about to meet with Christ in his modesty, he had put some clothing on before jumping into the water. Now we learn that Peter's boat was large enough for himself, a catch of fish, and the six other men who were with him. So it was probably propelled by a sail. This wasn't any common rowboat. But the other students came in a boat. For they were not far from the land, but about 200 cubits, dragging along the net full of fish. The common cubit being 18 inches. 200 cubits would be about 100 of our yards, 300 feet. Liddell and Scott actually defined the pecus, or cubit, as being 18 and a quarter inches. Other sources have it as long as half a meter, or 19 and a half inches. This we may doubt, as archaeologists have found that there was also a long, or royal, cubit of about 21 inches. In verse 3 of this chapter, the word for vessel is ployon, for which the King James Version has ship. The rendering is not incorrect, but in our modern vernacular, we typically use the word ship to describe very large vessels. Here, although it still refers to the same vessel, the word is ployarion, which is a diminutive form of ployon. So we have it as boat, where the King James Version has little ship. It's a ship in verse 3, and here it's a little ship, which I think is like kind of cute, maybe. In 1986, partial remains of what was apparently a small fishing boat were discovered near the site of ancient Magdala, which is approximately three miles north of the site of Tiberias. The boat, believed to have been from the first century and preserved in mud, was approximately eight feet wide and 26 feet long and remains of the hull were exposed only because of severe droughts in the area that year, which had caused the level of the lake to drop considerably. Archaeologists believe that the rest of the boat was stripped off before the hull was abandoned, so that the parts could be reused. If such a boat were typical for the time, it very well fits the description of the sort of boat Peter had here which could hold seven men who were working at fishing and a large catch of fish. Then, and this is verse 9, then as they went up onto the land, they see a charcoal fire spread out and fish and bread lying upon it. And the word for which we have spread out is kaimahi, where literally the phrase is a charcoal fire lying and fish and bread lying upon it. It's epikamahi is the second verb. Liddell and Scott explained that in various contexts, the word kaimahi can be situated or set up among other things. So spread out seemed to be the way to translate it here. The King James Version ignored the word. They ignored this first verb, since where lying appears later in the verse in reference to the fish and bread, it is from the verb epikaimahi, which is to lie upon, 
It's a compound form of the same word. Evidently, as the men in the boat came to shore, Yahshua Christ had already been preparing a meal for them and did not really need the fish which they had caught. Perhaps there is symbolism in the fact that Christ was feeding his disciples as he was about to command them and especially Peter to feed his sheep. Yahshua says to them in verse 10, Bring from the fish which you have caught now. Then Simon Petrus went up and dragged to the land the net full of large fish, 153. Yet there being so many, the net did not tear. So many people have looked for meaning in this number of 153 when really no precise meaning can be found. Some sources, including a Wikipedia article, but I found this in several articles, state that it had been noted that the Tetragrammaton occurs 153 times in the book of Genesis. The Jewish Encyclopedia confirms this count. I wish it was so, but I could not verify this. Since using BibleWorks software, it appears that the Tetragrammaton is found 166 times in 144 verses of the book of Genesis, according to the rather standard Westminster theological text of the Masoretic text. So many commentators pointed to supposed 153 occurrences of the Tetragrammaton in Genesis as corresponding to the number of fish here, but it certainly seems not to be true. In fact, it's simply not true. I counted them like eight times yesterday, just to be sure. There are 144 verses in the book of Genesis which contain a form of the Tetragrammaton. Now, some of them are um, matched to a prefix that's a a pronoun or a preposition. That's the style of Hebrew. So if you search on the lemma in Bible works, they won't all come up. But if you search on the form, you'll get more hits. And there's 144 times it's in there. I'm sorry, 166 times it's in there in 144 different verses. So in 22 verses, the word appears twice, which is the case. My own opinion is that commentators, and I wouldn't even, I, I've seen a lot of other um, theories on the meaning of this number, 153, but my own opinion is that commentators will go to great lengths to try to find meanings imagined to be hidden in certain numbers. They'll spend months on it when no apparent meanings are implied by the author and I say author with a capital A because Yahweh God is the author. No apparent meanings are implied by the author of the scriptures. Yet at the same time, those same men cannot read the plain words of scripture in order to find out the true meaning which the author, meaning Yahweh God himself, has transmitted through his prophets and apostles. A million clowns will 
try to tell you what 153 means, but that same one million clowns don't know who the hell the lost sheep are that Christ insisted Peter goes and feeds three times in this same chapter. So maybe, just maybe, Yahweh God put this number in here to make fools out of a million Bible commentators that'll search for some crazy meaning in a number, but they don't know who the hell the sheep are. If John meant to transmit any hidden message in the number of fish, or if Yahweh himself had planned it that way, it certainly cannot be told from Scripture. And like I said, I wish it was the number of times that the Tetragrammaton appeared in Genesis, but it's not. And I don't know who made up that lie, but it's not true, Un unless some Jew just cut a few lines out here and there. <laughs> I wouldn't doubt that. Changed them to Adonai or something. Yahshua says to them in verse 12, Come, have breakfast. And not one of the students dared to inquire of him. Who are you? Knowing that he is the prince. Perhaps dared may have been better rendered as ventured. Seemingly, the apostles no longer needed any reassurance that this was indeed the risen Christ. As by this time, they were confident that it was him. Verse 13. Yahshua comes and takes the bread and gives it to them, and likewise the fish. This is already the third time Yahshua appeared to the students, having risen from the dead. Evidently, John could only offer a testimony from his own perspective. So he was not counting peripheral events, such as the appearance of Christ to Mary Magdalene and the women who were with her in the garden at the garden tomb or the experience of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus as it is recorded in Luke. John must have known about that also as those two disciples, Cleopas and the other one who remained unnamed, returned to Jerusalem and reported their experience to the eleven just as Christ, for the first time, had appeared to them all in the locked room, as it is reported in Luke chapter 24. So, as we have mentioned, according to John, Christ had appeared to his disciples twice in Jerusalem before this appearance in Galilee. But that does not discount other appearances which Christ had made to others. Now John focuses on what had transpired at this breakfast between Yahshua Christ and Simon Peter. We have remarked several times throughout our commentary that Peter had a very stubborn nature, and often he had to be told, or he had to experience something several times in order for him to comprehend it. So when Peter proclaimed that he would die for Christ, Christ told him that he would actually deny him three times before the cock would crow that morning. Several years later, as it is described in 
Acts chapter 10, Peter would have to see the vision of the sheet come down from heaven three times before he could begin to understand the accompanying message. But here Christ illustrates this aspect of Peter's character once again, even in spite of the fact that Peter himself becomes annoyed when he tells him to feed his sheep three times. Therefore, when they had breakfast, Yahshua says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Johannes, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He says to him, yes, prince, you know that I love you. He says to him, feed my lambs. Verse 15. The King James Version has, so when they had dined. However, it is only morning, and the Greek verb, aristeo, while it was used generally, had originally referred to the eating of the morning meal. Originally, the noun ariston described the first food eaten in the morning or before work, and dipnon described the more formal dinner eaten in the evening. So there was a verb corresponding to that, dipneo, which means to eat dinner or the chief meal of the day. Three times here, and only here, we also see that the name of Simon Peter's father was John, or in Greek, Johannes, the same name as our Apostle John. But the words son of are only implied in the genitive case of the name for John, which was conventional, conventional in Koine Greek. And, and when you read the Greek version of the genealogy of Christ in Matthew chapter 3, you'll see that. It's simply um, David, son of Boaz. And son of isn't in Greek, but Boaz is in the genitive case, or at least the names that could be declinable that were in the genitive case. So you'll see on and on just two names. David of Boaz, Boaz of this guy, this guy of that guy, and, and all throughout. No, I don't have the genealogy memorized, I'm sorry. But you'll see that all the way up to like Jacob of Isaac, Isaac of Abraham, just two names. And one of them's in the genitive case, which we, we in English have to attach a, a preposition to in order for it to make sense, like of or from. And that implies that the first man is the son of the second. So in the first epistle of John, in chapter 3, it says Cain to Poneru. It's Cain who is the son of the wicked one. Same thing, same principle. The Codex Alexandrinus and the majority text have Jonas, a different, slightly shorter Greek word, Jonas, on each occasion. However, our text follows the Codices Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, Ephraimisiri, Beze, and Washingtonensis, which all consistently have John, except, there's always an except, right? except that the Codex Sinaiticus wants the phrase son of John here in verse 15. 
It does have Son of John in the other passages which follow, 16 and 17. So, verse 16. Again, he says to him a second time. The Sinaiticus also wants that word for second time. Simon, son of John, do you love me? He says to him, yes, prince. You know that I love you. He says to him, tend to my sheep. Tend to my sheep, not feed my lambs that we saw in verse 15. Twice in the King James Version, these passages in verses 15, 16, and 17, in these passages we see the phrase, feed my sheep, while first in verse 15 it is feed my lambs. However, in the Christogenian New Testament, on each of three occasions, the expression is slightly different. That is because in the original Greek, John actually recorded the statement three different ways. In verse 15, it's baska ta'arnia mu, which is feed my lambs. Then in verse 16, it is poimahina ta'probata mu, which is tend to my sheep. Finally, in verse 17, it is baska ta probata mu. The first noun in these phrases, arnion, means a little lamb. That's why it says feed my lambs in verse 15. The second noun, probatum, was used to the, in the plural, ta probata, with the article, to describe any variety of cattle, but sheep is implied by the context here. The codices Ephraimisiri and Beze have probatan in all three places. They don't have lambs in 15. They have sheep there also. In verse 16, the codices Vaticanus and Ephraimisiri have a diminutive form of probatan, probatia, so it would be feed my little sheep, but not really my lambs, right? And in verse 17, both they and the Codex Alexandrinus have that form, feed my little sheep. The verb bosco, used twice in verses 15 and 17, generally means to feed. But the verb poimahino, used in verse 16, in the second of these three admonitions, more precisely means to tend a flock of sheep to act as a shepherd. And that's how we can be confident that by saying ta, bro, ta probata, Christ means sheep and not just any cattle like goats or cows or steer, whatever, cattle. So now we see a, the third of these admonitions. He says to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he said to him the third time, do you love me? And says to him, Prince, you know all things. You know that I love you. Yahshua says to him, feed my sheep. Where we have grieved, the verb is lupeo. And it had a wide variety of uses. In the active sense, Liddell and Scott define the word to mean to give pain to, to pain, distress, grieve, or vex, or annoy, 
So we may have written here that Peter was vexed or Peter was annoyed, and that would be fine. He was getting pissed off, right, as we would say today. The concept of feeding the sheep with the gospel of Christ, which is what Christ had told Peter he would do, is not new with the advent of Christ. In Isaiah chapter 40, we see a prophecy which was fulfilled in John the Baptist, where it says, The voice of him that cries in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of Yahweh, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Not the literal desert, but the allegorical desert of truth in Jerusalem is how I would interpret that. Then the voice is portrayed as announcing things to the children of Israel. I'm sorry, my throat is getting stuck. I need a drink. As announcing things to the children of Israel. And among them we read from verse 9 of the chapter, O Zion, that bringest good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, that bringest good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold, your God. This is right in conjunction with that prophecy of John the Baptist. This is what John the Baptist would announce when he called Christ the bridegroom. So the prophets insist that the Messiah must be God. Behold, Yahweh God will come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm, and carry them in his bosom, and shall gently lead, lead those that are with young. In Ezekiel chapter 34, long after the children of Israel and most of Judah were deported into Assyrian captivity, we read in part, And the word of Yahweh came unto me, saying, Son of man, prophecy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophecy, and say unto them, Thus saith Yahweh God unto the shepherds. Woe be to the shepherds of Israel that do feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? Then, after recounting how the rulers of the ancient kingdom, who were the shepherds, had abused their position and fed themselves off of the sheep, it says in verse 5, And they were scattered, because there is no shepherd. And they became meat to all the beasts of the field when they were scattered, the Assyrians, the Babylonians and, and all the other nations in league with them that invaded Israel. My sheep wandered through all the mountains and upon every high hill. Yeah, my flock was scattered upon all the face of the earth and none did search or seek after them. Therefore, ye shepherds, hear the word of Yahweh. As I live, saith Yahweh God, Surely because my flock became a prey and my flock became me to every beast of the field. Because there was no shepherd, neither did my shepherd search for my flock, but the shepherds fed themselves and fed not my flock. Therefore, ye shepherds, hear the word of Yahweh. 
Thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my flock at their hand, and cause them to cease from feeding the flock. Neither shall the shepherds feed themselves any more, for I will deliver my flock from their mouth, that they shall not be meat for them. And of course, the kingdom and its ancient administration and the Levitical priesthood all came to an end. Surely passages such as this one also led the apostles to correctly conclude that Yahshua Christ was indeed Yahweh God incarnate come to gather his sheep and feed his flock as Christ also attested that he would do. So where Ezekiel continues, Yahweh professes the purpose of Christ, which was to continue in his apostles. For thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I, even I, will both search my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock, in the day that he is among his sheep that are scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and will deliver them out of all places where they have been scattered in the cloudy and dark day. And I will bring them out from the people and gather them out from the countries and will bring them into their own land and feed them upon the mountains of Israel by the rivers and in all the inhabited places of the country. This all happened when the woman with the 12 stars in the Revelation, fled into the wilderness. I will feed them, verse 14, in a good pasture and upon the high mountains of Israel, not necessarily in Palestine, shall their fold be. There shall they lie in a good fold, and in a fat pasture shall they feed upon the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock, and I will cause them to lie down, saith Yahweh God. That actually, that in, in Ezekiel, that should actually be said or translated as Lord Yahweh. I will seek that which was lost and bring again that which was driven away and will bind up that which was broken and will strengthen that which was sick. But I will destroy the fat and the strong. I will feed them with judgment. And as for you, O my flock, thus saith the Lord Yahweh, behold, I judge between cattle and cattle between the rams and the he-goats, because the goats had to eventually be cut out or weeded out. If this was the announced purpose of God, then this is also the purpose of the ministry of Christ. The same Yahweh God incarnate, to regather the scattered children of Israel who were the sheep that were driven away and bring again that which was driven away. Seek that which was lost. While the Babylonians and Assyrians were the vehicles by which they were finally driven away, the rulers themselves shouldered the blame, and Yahweh declared that he himself would save them. Because you have thrust with side and with shoulder, Ezekiel 34, 21, and pushed all the diseased with your horns till you have scattered them abroad. Therefore will I save my flock, and they shall no more be a prey, and I will judge between cattle and cattle. This day we await. And I will set up one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, even my servant David. 
He shall feed them and he shall be their shepherd. And I, Yahweh, will be their God and my servant David a prince among them. I, Yahweh, have spoken it. Yahweh is both God and Messiah, as David is a type for Christ, who is also both David's son and David's master, as Christ himself also professed. And that understanding is the only means by which to resolve the seeming enigma. The purpose of John's gospel, in part, was to declare that very truth which we read in the exclamation of Thomas, who saw the risen Christ and declared him to be both Lord and God. In Jeremiah chapter 30, we read of the punishment of the children of Israel and a promise of destruction for all other nations. Where the word of Yahweh says, For I am with thee, saith Yahweh, to save thee, though I make a full end of all nations, whither I have scattered thee. Yet will I not make a full end of thee, but will correct thee in measure, and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. Then, as that judgment against the nations is elaborated on to the end of that chapter, we read in the first verse of chapter 31, at the same time, saith Yahweh, will I be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus saith Yahweh, the people which were left to the sword found grace in the wilderness. Even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest. This period of rest followed the Assyrian captivity of the 8th century BC, into which Israel and most of Judah had already been taken by that time. Then further on, in Jeremiah chapter 31, we read, For there shall be a day that the watchmen upon the Mount Ephraim shall cry, Arise ye, and let us go up to Zion, unto Yahweh our God. For thus saith Yahweh, Sing with gladness for Jacob, and shout among the chief of the nations, Publish ye, praise ye, and say, O Yahweh, save thy people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the coast of the earth, and with them the blind and lame, the children of Israel, the woman with child, and her that travails with child together. A great company shall return thither. They shall come with weeping, and with supplications will I lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way, wherein they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of Yahweh, O ye nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, He that scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. For Yahweh has redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of him that was stronger than he. So we see the purpose of the gospel as it was announced in the opening chapter of Luke, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. 
in Revelation chapter 12. The people who found grace in the wilderness are represented as a woman with 12 stars, one each for the 12 tribes of Israel. There we read in part, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared of God that they should feed her. Let's go back to Jeremiah chapter 31. He that scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. And then Revelation 12, the woman that flees into that same wilderness where the children of Israel were said to have found grace. This is the grace. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God, not in Palestine, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and three score days. The 1260 days evidently represents half of the seven biblical times for which the children of Israel were to be punished for their sins, as it's stated in Leviticus, I think in chapter 26, and indicated also in Daniel. A day in prophecy representing a year. During this time, all of the so-called lost sheep were fed with the gospel of Christ, so they who would feed her are represented by the apostles of Christ and their successors. Going back to Jeremiah, right after that, in that same chapter, just a few verses later, we find the promise of a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And that's the new covenant in Christ. There's no adding other people to that covenant. As Paul of Tarsus said, no man can change it or make additions to for himself. That is the feeding of the sheep who had wandered over all the mountains, but mostly into Europe and at that time Central Asia. They are the sheep to which Yahshua was referring here in this final chapter of John. As a consequence of this understanding and the words of the prophets, Peter wrote his epistles to a particular elect race. James wrote his single epistle to those same 12 tribes scattered abroad. Paul of Tarsus professed that I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, unto which promise our 12 tribes, instantly serving God day and night, even when they don't know it, hope to come in Acts chapter 26. This was their message. And it was their only message, as the nations to which Paul had brought the gospel were the same nations descended from those ancient Israelites, as all of his epistles prove in one way or another. Romans chapter 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Galatians chapters 3 and 4 being my favorite places to demonstrate that. Now, Yahshua, once again, describes Peter's stubborn nature. And perhaps Peter himself stands as a type for all Israel. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you girt yourself and walked about wherever you wished. But when you should grow old, you shall extend your hand and another shall gird and bring you where you do not wish. When Peter was young, he did what he wanted, but the day would come when he would be led to do something which he would not want. 
and evidently others would take him by compulsion. So John interpreted this to indicate how Peter would die. Now he said this indicating with what sort of death he would honor Yahweh. And upon saying this, he says to him, follow me. Earlier in his ministry, Christ had said, as it is recorded in Luke chapter 9, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. In the home of the high priest, the night before the crucifixion, Peter didn't deny himself. He denied Christ instead. Now, he was asking Peter to do that same thing once again, to deny himself and feed the sheep and take up that cross and follow him as if Peter required the additional admonishment. It seems that Peter remained stubborn, as Paul records in Galatians chapter 2, that he had to admonish Peter because he was hypocritically yielding to certain Judaizers. Later, in his second epistle, Peter admitted that while Paul's epistles were difficult to understand, those who perverted the meaning of them did so at the risk of their own destruction. Today, that would describe every single denominational church, including the Orthodox and the Roman Catholic. There are several early Christian accounts, beginning from the second century, which placed Peter in Rome towards the end of his life, although not while Paul was yet living there. And later accounts attest that Peter was also crucified in Rome. None of them are contemporary to the time of the apostles, and the early Christian writers who do the early Christian writers do not entirely confirm the later so-called church tradition, of which I am quite skeptical. Many of the statements found in the writings of the church fathers are sheer Roman Catholic propaganda and are actually antithetical to the Christianity of the apostles, which is evidenced in the scriptures. When Peter wrote his epistles, they were addressed to Christian assemblies in Anatolia, which Paul had founded. They were probably written after Paul's death, since they testify of Paul's epistles. And Peter had written them both from Babylon in an apparently short space of time. It is apparent that Paul was executed in 62 AD. So if Peter did go to Rome, which... Some evidence, some evidence suggests he must have went after that time. However, some writers claim he was in Rome preaching with Paul, something which the evidence throughout the book of Acts and the epistles of both Peter and Paul does not support. Now, Peter evidently does not like what he has heard from Yahshua. He evidently understood what Christ had implied and he points a finger at John. Turning, Peter sees the student whom Yahshua loved following. He who had also reclined upon his breast at the dinner and said, Prince, who is he betraying you? That word following. They may not have been walking during the conversation. As the verb was also used to describe the act of following along by listening to someone. 
which may be what John had meant. John himself was the disciple whom Peter had encouraged to inquire of Joshua at their last Passover dinner together, the evening prior to his arrest. Here, once again, John purposely avoided referring to himself by name, as he has done throughout his gospel. However, in verse 24, John confesses that these were all references to himself. Verse 21. Therefore, Petro, seeing him, says to Yahshua, Prince, what about this man? Yahshua says to him, If I wish him to abide until I come, what is it to you? You follow me. For the same reason, in the parable of the vineyard workers, which is presented in Mark chapter 3, those workers who showed up early in the day and who agreed to work for a penny had no legitimate complaint when the workers who showed up in the last hour were nevertheless paid a penny. If one Christian seems to be rewarded more than another, that is the decision of God, the master of the vineyard, and it should not be questioned by men. Some churches to this day, namely the cult known as the so-called Church of Latter-day Saints or Mormons, claim that this meant that John would not die, even though in the very next verse, John himself sought to refute that interpretation. Therefore, this word went out to the brethren that that student would not die. But Yahshua had not said to him that he would not die, but if I wish him to abide until I come, what is it to you? The Codex Sinaiticus has the end of that verse to read, but I would wish him to abide until I come, and leaves off the question, what is it to you? The Codex Beze likewise has, but I would wish him to abide until I come to you. Our text follows the codices Alexandrinus, Vaticanus, Ephraim Assyri, Washingtonensis, and the majority text, which the King James usually follows. In the opening presentation of this commentary on the Gospel of John, Part 1, the Word Made Flesh, presented here nearly two years ago, we're just 10 days short of this commentary taking two years. May 18, 2018, we cited many of the early Christian writers in order to show that John wrote his gospel, as well as his surviving epistles and the Revelation, while he was in Ephesus very late in his life. Doing that, we said in part, on another note, it is recorded in all three of the Synoptic Gospels that Christ had said, as we read from Matthew chapter 16, Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the coming of the Son of Man in his kingdom. Here we must consider that he may have meant, we must consider what he may have meant where he said, shall not taste of death. The closing verses of John chapter 8 reveal that Christ must have been referring to a spiritual death and not merely the death of the physical body. As he also said in the exchange with, with his adversaries there, 
that if a man keeps my saying, he shall never see death. So when they challenged him on the basis of the status and death of Abraham, he replied that your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad, implying that although Abraham was dead in body, he was certainly alive in the spirit. So elsewhere he attested that Yahweh God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Perhaps those who do not taste death merely pass into the spirit without experiencing their own death, as Christ in the gospel described death as an entering into life, citing Matthew chapter 18 and Mark chapter 9. Yet even this comment by Christ, where he said, if I wish him to abide until I come, what is it to you? Seems not to have been a prophecy or a statement of purpose concerning John. Rather, it is only a rhetorical challenge to Peter, whereby Christ is saying that John's fate, which was apparently less horrifying than what Peter would ultimately have to face, should be none of Peter's concern, that Peter had his own trial and walk in life. The same early accounts of the so-called church fathers state that John had remained in Ephesus until the days of Trajan, who became Roman emperor around 98 AD. There is to this day a basilica dedicated to John, which stands in Ephesus, which was built in the 6th century by the emperor Justinian over what was believed to be the site of his burial. So in any event, early Christians did not believe this passage to mean that John would not die a physical death as he himself had stated here. Rather, early Christians believed that John died, although at a very old age. However, once it is understood that John did not die until at least 98 AD, perhaps this passage, along with the entire book of Revelation, also may serve as a refutation of the heresy of preterism, the foolish belief that Christ somehow returned in 70 AD when Jerusalem was destroyed, but also failed to fulfill all the other prophecies concerning his second advent. We still have Edomites. We still have a Jewish problem. We still have niggers. What the hell? Preterism is a terrible heresy. It pulls men away from the truth of God. Verse 24. This is the student who is testifying concerning these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. John himself is making this assertion, and we know that his testimony is true. However, he has never before written of himself alone in the third person. So evidently, he may actually be meaning to refer to others who were in Ephesus with him when he wrote these things, that they also know along with him that this testimony is true. Now, verse 25. Now, there are also many other things Yahshua had done, which if each one were written, 
I suppose that society itself would not have space for the books which would be written. The Codex Sinaiticus wants the whole of verse 25, where I may be inclined to believe it was a later edition. However, all the other manuscripts, including the equally ancient Codex Vaticanus and many manuscripts in other languages, such as the Syriac and Latin, do contain the passage, so I must retain it as well. Only the majority text adds the word which the King James Version transliterates as Amen. In chapter 20 of his Gospel, John had said that many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. And while some of them are found in the other Gospel accounts, surely there must have been many things which are not. Now, as John finished his Gospel professing to have many things to say, but didn't, we shall conclude our commentary on the Gospel of John in that same manner. There is always much more that we could write in relation to all of the things which John has taught us in his Gospel, but we shall leave off here. This is the 51st and final presentation in this series and concludes our commentary on the Gospel of John. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. And good night.